forever. Amen. Amen, church. Before we keep going, why don't you say hi to the person across from you or behind you? Oh, hey. Thanks, dude. Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? Awesome. I'm glad. Morning. Yeah. Uh, man, I hope you guys got some water or some coffee as we dive into our time today. Uh, before I, I jump into everything, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 24. We're going to look at actually just two verses today, verse 24 and verse 25. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open that or load that for me. Uh, while you're doing that, I've got a couple of, uh, I guess, announcements or just things to, to kind of bring you up to speed. Uh, man, if you are new, if you're just joining us. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love to hang out with you in the rows that you're seated in. There are these connect cards. Uh, Man, it would be awesome if you'd fill one out excuse me, drop it in the offering basket. And uh, man, we, we so much want to hang out with you that someone will get with you within 24 hours. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, Bibles are available to you and for you there on the rows. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, that is our gift to you. So please take one with you this morning. In light of that, um, if you are a part of the Sacred Romance class, just to let you know, we are having or we are meeting tomorrow still at the Old Church Winery. It's the last class that we're doing. My wife and I have been teaching that. And so tomorrow, I think it's going to be on, on finances and stewardship along with a Q&A. So if you're a part of that, go ahead and still be, uh, or just go ahead and still show up. Uh, and finally, if you are a group leader, or even if you visit our website regularly and you look for our guides, which is what we uh, talk and discuss during community groups, uh, you're going to notice that this week's uh, scripture is, uh, is Acts 2 on the guide, but I'm preaching from Hebrews 10. So, sorry. Um, with all that being said, those are all the quick announcements that I, that I have for y'all. If you're just joining us, about two weeks ago, we started a new sermon series titled Revival Renewal in the Ordinary. Uh, and so I want to give you a brief recap of, of what we've covered and, and specifically how we have defined revival as. Uh, some of the conversation, which has been really, really good over the past couple of weeks, some of the conversations that we've had has been regarding what revival actually is. And so what we pushed for uh, week one is that historic and even biblically, uh, revival is not an event. It's, it is a work of the Spirit of God in the people of God. In fact, that's how we have defined it, that revival is an extraordinary work of the Spirit of God in the people of God. It is not an event. Um, it's not a, a giant tent on the fringes of the city. Um, that is just uh, a place where people are having service in, in a tent. And so uh, historically and biblically, a revival is an extraordinary work of the Spirit of God in the people of God. Now I want to break that down briefly as we continue our time. 
The reason we chose the word extraordinary is because in revival, we're begging the Holy Spirit not to do something uh, different or to do something unusual, but we are begging the Holy Spirit to do more of what he already does. And scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit comforts us, that he convicts us, that he counsels us, that he transforms our hearts and our thinking. And so as a result, in a season of revival, we are begging the Holy Spirit to intensify his work for a season. Uh, An easy way of looking at it would be, man, we are asking the Holy Spirit to dump like kind of a, a bucket of gasoline on a fire. So it sparks and goes and has a lot of strength for a season. With that being said, today we're going to be looking at revival and community, and we're going to see how the Spirit works in and through community, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Again, really thankful that y'all are here. Let's dive into to, to our time. I want to start with a question. Who, you know, you probably say something, right? Who likes to cook, right? I love to cook. I freaking love cooking. It's okay, Jen. Not everybody does. I know. I'm sorry. No, but it's all good. I, I, I love to cook. It is one of my favorite hobbies. Uh, not only do I really love food, not only do I enjoy a lot of food, but at the same time, I really enjoy the process. I love starting something and I love finishing it. And cooking is one of those hobbies that really does help me, uh, oh, I don't know, unwind and, and kind of decompress. And so as a result, here, here's the next question. For those of you that do like to cook, or maybe you like to do a couple of things, have you ever made a vinaigrette? Right? Some like, no, I've never, no, I've never made a vinaigrette. It's okay. This example or this illustration is certainly going to apply to vinaigrette, but if you've ever even baked anything where you've combined dry ingredients and wet ingredients and put them together, like this will apply to it. A couple of years ago, I lived in Denton, Texas. It's just north of Dallas, and I promise you this all has a point. And, uh, <laughs> and so I lived in Denton, Texas. It's just north of Dallas. And I used to hang out with my friend Cody, uh, and I would go to his house regularly. And, uh, and I loved hanging out with Cody, uh, one, because he would teach me a ton of stuff, and we'd talk through a bunch of stuff, but more so because previous to him and his wife moving to Denton, Cody used to be a chef in Houston. And so I would show up, I would go to Cody's house uh, about two or three times a week, and one of those days we'd always work on a dish, and he had showed me some trippy, really cool methods that I still use to this day, which is really cool because it impresses my wife. And so, uh, <laughs> and so Cody would show me a bunch of things, man. We learned everything. I, I learned everything on how to sauve and even how to blanch stuff. Like that was really, really cool blah, blah, blah. One day I show up, Cody's like, hey man, I want to show you how to make a vinaigrette. Never made a vinaigrette, never even knew how vinaigrette is made. And uh, it's probably one of the things I hate the most in a kitchen. And so I show up and uh, I, was, I was working out a lot and Cody, I remember Cody just telling me, we're going to see how well those muscles are developed. And so we're going to do this the hard way. Uh, the reason he said it the hard way is because if you ever make a vinaigrette or even if you make a batter, you could obviously use machines for that. You could use a food processor, you could use that big old blender, blah, blah, blah. 
Cody tells me, here's a mixing bowl. In order to make a vinaigrette, we need three ingredients. We need an acid, we need a fat, and then we need a binder. I said, okay. And so we're going to make a very simple vinaigrette. We're going to take vinegar, we're going to take olive oil, and we're going to use mustard. Mustard is what's going to bind the vinegar and the olive oil because vinegar and olive oil is like water and oil. They don't mix. Mustard is what's going to bring them together, and you could use a variety of other ingredients. Blah, blah, blah. So Cody puts a mixing bowl in the center of the table, puts it on a towel so it doesn't move, and he puts in one part vinegar. I forgot how much mustard. He gives me a whisk, and he says, man, start whisking. You got to create and generate enough heat to get it moving. And so I'm like whisking with my right hand, and all this is cramping up, and I'm starting to sweat because he's saying you got to be consistent with the speed. And then he hands me a, a bottle of olive oil, and he says, now you need to slowly but consistently pour or drip that olive oil into the mix, but you can't stop whisking because if you stop whisking, it's not going to, it's not going to combine into one and it's just going to be really, really sloppy. And so I am sweating making this, this dumb vinaigrette. And so I'm like whisking and whisking and Cody's, uh, or gives me the olive oil and I'm pouring and he's just watching. And the thing is you can't pour too much olive oil because you'll, you'll ruin it. You'll need to uh, make up for it with more vinegar and more, more uh, with a different binder, blah, blah, blah. He's doing all this. And so he's like, make it slow, make it slow. And finally make a vinaigrette. It was one of the most exhausting things I'd ever made in the kitchen, right? Never again do I, do I want to make it. Afterward, I'm sweating, I'm tired, and Cody says, that is called the process of emulsification, where we are combining ingredients and making them into one. But in order for this to be successful, there needs to be heat or stress or friction in order for these ingredients to eventually bind into one. Friction does a lot of things, right? Friction helps to improve some things, Friction helps to, uh, man, I was, I was doing, I was looking up other stuff, not just, I didn't want to just use that example, but friction helps to kill germs. If you've ever seen, I'm going to say it, if you've ever seen how beer is made, right, they need to create heat with all of the different ingredients so that they kill any of the germs in the hop. So heat or friction kills germs. Heat or friction uh, ends up aligning things, making them straight or molding them into the way that they are supposed to be. My son watches this show called Forged in Fire, and they're like making like blades and swords and all this stuff. But one of the things that they always use is fire. They're always using friction in order to mold the blade into the way it needs to be. Friction is necessary. If we use the cooking example, friction or stress is necessary in order to emulsify ingredients, in order for ingredients to become one. And just like there is purpose and a process in emulsification in the culinary arts, the same is said concerning community. The same thing is said when it comes to community with one another. The writer of Hebrews this morning is going to exhort us to stir up one another. And some of it, frankly, is going to be a little uncomfortable. I don't think it's going to be uncomfortable because of something I'm going to say. I don't think. I think it's just because he's going to be real and put things on the table for us this morning. And I think that's the point. I just think that's the point. And so if you have your Bibles, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Remember, we're only looking at two verses, 24 and 25. This is what the writer says. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. God, as we come before you and as we come before you in worship of the study of your word, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would be present and that you would be at work among us that you would challenge and convict hearts and drive us to a place of worship and repentance, that this time would bring you glory and that it would be for our good, that we would do business with what you have for us this morning. And again, that this would be for your glory and our good. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So much like the, the, the first two weeks, I usually ask a couple of questions and then I'll walk you through each one of them. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. Not much is changing in that. And so I'm going to draw you to verse 24 by starting with the question. And the first question is, what does it mean to stir up one another. If we go back to verse 24, the writer says, let us consider how to stir up one another. I'm just break it down real easy and then we're going to talk real practical about it. Here's what he is saying. Here's what he means when he says, let us consider how to stir up one another. He says to think carefully and provoke one another. The word stir up or the phrase stir up in the original language boils down to one word, to provoke. And so that's what he's saying. He said, I want you to think very carefully about how to provoke one another. Now that can have, that can make you think of a couple of things. For, for, for some of you, you might hear, yes, I love provoking people. Pushing buttons is my jam. Some of you hear that and you're like, if someone provokes me or pushes this particular button, I'll, you know, I'll do ministry from prison. Like, it's all good, right? <laughs> but I want you to consider the whole verse, and we're going to talk about the second half later on, but I want you to consider the whole verse. He says, let us think carefully how to provoke one another to love and good works. Let us think carefully about how to provoke one another to godliness. It has a different, it should give us a different perspective, because the truth is that there, there is a difference between provoking one another to godliness and pushing one another's buttons, right? And I get that. Like, I was raised with brothers, and, and you could ask my wife, when we all hang out, our goal is to push one another's buttons. It is like blood to sharks, right? We just go after one another with some of the most meanest and crude comments, and it is hilarious, right? That's not what he is saying here, <laughs> right? That is not what he is saying here. That's not what the author of Hebrews is asking us to or telling us to consider. Pushing one another buttons is, is something different, and maybe we might get to that, but for the sake of what he is writing, he is saying that we are to provoke one another toward godliness. And so here's what I want you to know. If you hear uh, just this one thing, or if you walk away with just one thing today, it would be this. 
personal revival cannot be sustained in isolation, but it is best sustained in community. I'll say that one more time. Personal revival cannot be sustained in isolation, but it is best sustained in community. When we look at the church body, when we look at community, we are not simply preaching church membership for the sake of unity. We are preaching church membership for the sake of unity so that we would provoke one another toward godliness. There is a purpose. There is a, uh, I guess you could say there is a godly purpose. There ought to be a godly purpose into provoking one another. It is for us to grow in our godliness, in our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It is not aimless and it is not just for funsies. There is a purpose to provocation. And so community doesn't simply serve for unity, though that is incredibly important. But within that, we're not just lone islands. That if we are inevitably going to bring glory to God, and if we turn it into, uh, I guess, a, a formula of emulsification, you have the Word of God, you have the people of God, you have the Spirit of God, and what we need to do is create friction in order for those to be one. And it is done and sustained in community. When we look at verse 24, uh, yeah, when we look at verse 24 and the beginning of verse 25, you see a positive and you see a negative. The positive is to stir up one another. The negative is in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. That is the negative part. Revival in isolation burns out. You can have personal revival. We've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks. That you can identify, that you could even be convicted by the Spirit and have this personal revival concerning your sin and your relationship with God and the condition of your heart. You can have all of those things. Those things can be present for you personally. And if you keep them in isolation, it and you will burn out. If you look at even the, if you've seen movies where there's maybe a campfire and then the the night starts to creep in and it starts to get darker and darker and darker and maybe the wind picks up and you're seeing the flame kind of move in different directions and it's struggling to stay alive, but eventually it is consumed by the night and it burns out, it just turns off. That is what personal revival looks like in isolation that you can have these growing convictions or you can just have these, uh, maybe these beginning convictions, but unless there is a stirring up in community, unless there is something to sustain it, it will eventually burn out. And the truth is, I think, is that many of you who, choo- many of you who choose to be in isolation are making decisions. In other words, you didn't just get there. It didn't just happen. Like, decisions have been made to get you there. And as a result, there are consequences. And the writer of Hebrews touches on those consequences. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. 
He says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Personal revival in isolation eventually burns out. And it didn't just burn out just because. It led to that through a series of decisions made by you. And what the writer is challenging us on in Hebrews 3 is to not only exhort one another, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. It's another word for encouragement. He's saying, I don't just want you to encourage one another for the sake of encouraging one another. I am telling you to encourage or exhort one another so that your heart would not grow hardened toward sin. So that you will not fall into the deception of sin. And a couple of weeks ago, when we started the revival series, those were a couple of the things that we talked about. That many would describe their spiritual condition or the spiritual condition of their heart or the relationship with Jesus as dry. Well, it doesn't just dry up just because. Was there a hardening of sin? Is there bitterness? Is there arrogance? Is there apathy? All of those things don't just happen. We feed them in order to get to a certain place. And so he says, exhort one another so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Yeah, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Additionally, and what I want you to know, is that God is a communal God. That God is one, but there are three persons. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are in perfect community with one another. And if we are created in the image of God, then community is actually something that we are reflecting because of who God is. And when we choose to be isolated, we are communicating something about what we believe about God. Even if you're introverted... Even if you're introverted, that only lasts for so long. This week, I had to take a personality exam. I hate personality exams, right? Uh, And I think one of them was the, the, I had to take two, and one of them was the Myers-Briggs. And the first thing that it says on there is I. What is I? Introvert. This guy, right? Like, I naturally lean towards introversion. Uh, for my birthday, which, which is an undisclosed date of the year, right? <laughs> for my birthday, uh, I asked my wife to give me the same thing every single year. It is a cooked steak with a side of bacon and to be left alone. I don't want my phone. I don't even want to talk to anybody, right? Like, there is this, like, I lean toward introversion. And yes, I got that from Parks and Rec. That's besides the point. That is besides the point, right? Like, as much as I enjoy that time, that only lasts for so long. And even if I were to disincline myself from my emotions, I need to be in community, and we're going to see why. One of those reasons is so that I would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, so that I would not grow arrogant, because in community, people will tell me how arrogant I am. So if you're hearing this and you're like, yeah, but I'm really introverted. 
That's a great excuse, and it only lasts so long. It only lasts so long. And so the second question, first one was, what does it mean to stir up one another? It means to think carefully about how to provoke one another toward godliness. That's the positive. The negative is, uh, the negative is neglecting to me, excuse me. The negative is neglecting to meet. And in addition to that, actually before moving on, look at the second half. He says, neglecting to meet one another as is the habit of some. I think that's why I really wanted to push. You're making decisions if you find yourself in isolation. One of the things that the writer of Hebrews is saying is that it's the habit of some. That means decisions have been made. Patterns have been set. Rhythms have been established. And that might be you, whether it's formal community and what we could define formal community is maybe the Sunday gathering, maybe community groups, maybe Bible studies. Informal community could be just asking one another to hang out and being present among one another that's both formal and informal. If you're neglecting to meet as is the habit of some, that means that there have been some decisions made, there have been rhythms established, there have been patterns set so that you place yourself in isolation. And again, we communicate something about who we say God is when we do that. So, question number two. Fine. If we are to stir one another up, to think carefully about how we provoke one another, well then how do we do it? And I want to be very practical this morning. How do we do it? The writer gives us one thing. He gives us one thing. He says, not neglecting to meet one another as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. That's it. Everything else is a result. So what must we do? We must encourage one another. Encouragement does a lot. And I don't simply want you to receive that as a way of like, oh, encouraging is like a good word, maybe even positive vibes. I want you to know that encouragement requires action. It requires action. If we go back to the example of the vinaigrette, you had these three ingredients and we needed to create heat. We needed to create that friction in order for those three ingredients to become one. If we apply that to the spirit of God, the people of God, and the word of God, what, bold, what makes them into one is going to be encouragement. Encouragement is the friction or the stress that causes opportunity for growth. Encouragement is the stress or the friction that causes opportunity for growth. Because encouragement does several things. And I don't necessarily, I don't think these things are on the notes, so I just want you to listen. Encouragement reminds us of grace. Encouragement reminds us of grace. It reminds us of what God is doing. Especially some of you who are, who are new or young Christians, when someone encourages you, when they speak encouraging words to you because they see God at work in you, that is encouragement. And all of these things are going to have something in common. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So encouragement reminds us of what God is doing. Encouragement reminds us of what God has done. It reminds us to place our hearts or tor- turn our hearts toward God. Encouragement is vital to the Christian life. It is no secret that we live in a fragmented and in a broken world. 
And so encouragement is actually speaking the gospel into one another. It is, being, it is speaking life into one another. The psalmist says that God's words are like a breath of fresh air to dry bones. Speaking the gospel, speaking gospel-centered truths into one another is like breathing life into one another. Encouragement points us to and reminds us of God's promises. It reminds us to the certainty of hope and the certainty of restoration. Biblical encouragement is a command that requires action. It's not just a thought. It's a command that requires action and not just a thought. The Journal of American Psychology defines encouragement as something that cannot be provided without interpersonal communication. In other words, you have to speak encouragement. Like if you want to be encouraging, that means you need to speak to someone else. You need to go up to someone and tell them. Encouragement requires action. That's the part that's uncomfortable. That's the part that's uncomfortable because it means that you're going to have to be honest. It means that we're going to have to be vulnerable. It means that we're going to have to be humble. It means that we're going to have to check the condition of our hearts. Because even if it's personal encouragement toward you, like maybe you heard something in the sermon, something in the song, and you're like, oh, that really encouraged me. To do what? What did it encourage you to do? Because encouragement requires action. Even if you look at Webster's Dictionary, it says to make confident and strong because it requires action. So there's no way around this. In the Greek, it means do something, right? <laughs> you gotta do something. And doing something is speaking. It's actually telling someone. Not saying, hey, tell them I said, no, no, no. It is you going up to that person. And if you find yourself in a position where you're like, I don't want to do that, then it's really not this that you wrestle with encouragement. Is that there's something happening beneath the surface. Something else is ruling the condition of your heart, and it is not Christ. It is not Christ. Something is louder. It might be hardening of sin. It might be bitterness toward an individual or a situation. It might even be apathy. Encouragement is the friction that causes opportunity for growth. If we want to grow in godliness, what the writer is saying, you want to grow in godliness, and you want to provoke one another, not just for the purpose of church membership, but to actually be the church, encourage one another. And again, that's not always just like a good, you know, like a compliment. Sometimes it's a hard conversation. It's a hard but gracious conversation. Right? What the Proverbs says like faithful are the wounds of a friend. Right? Like the goal of that is that a friend's going to be straight up with you. A friend's going to tell you the truth. A friend's going to be real with you. Early on in this series, I talked about how revival is just going to require a ton of things. Right? One of those was that re revival is going to require dependency on the Word of God or dependency on the Spirit of God. Revival is going to require humility. 
Revival is going to require honesty. And if we use those things and apply them to this, if we apply them to encouragement, then that means we need to be honest with one another. We need to be honest with ourselves first. Because it's not like for the one who is just, you know, if you don't struggle with encouragement, then do this. No, he's telling all of us. We ought to encourage one another. We ought to speak encouragement to one another. Yeah, sometimes it's going to be a hard conversation or a firm word. Sometimes it's going to be, man, something just very affirming. And that's great and that's wonderful. But it requires honesty, especially if you're buckling right now. If you're buckling right now, then there's something else. And it's not just, oh, I struggle with encouragement because I'm an introvert. Nada que ver, right? Like, doesn't have anything to do with it. Right? Last week I told you about that one Spanish phrase, right? No te hagas, right? Again, no te hagas. Right? Don't make, don't make an excuse. Right? <laughs> don't make the excuse. Biblical encouragement is a command from God and it requires action. It's not just a thought. Encouragement happens in a variety of spaces. It happens when we speak the gospel to one another. That's breathing life into one another. Encouragement is when we pray for one another. And I'm talking about like stopping and praying, not like, hey, I'll pray for you, bro. Next week. Right? Like stopping and praying for one another. Man, it, it happens when we confess sin to one another. Right? It happens when we confess sin to one another. Accountability is awesome but it is a byproduct of confession of sin. It is a byproduct of us pushing one another to turn our hearts toward God. It is us confessing our sins so that we would speak the gospel into one another so that we would be reminded of a beautiful truth that God loved us, that he sent his son, that that God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ, and that he lived the life that you and I cannot live, that he lived the life in perfect obedience to the Father, and then he goes to the cross to die the death that you and I deserve. And upon dying on the cross, right, he uses our debt, right? Our debt is sin, and and what we need to pay is, like, the, the penalty is death, and so he pays our debt with his credit, his perfect obedience and righteousness. He uses his credit to pay for our debt. And then he is buried. And then on the third day, he resurrects, conquering sin, Satan, hell, and demons, and offers us salvation. Offers salvation to all who would believe. To all who would believe. We need to be reminded of that. When you look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that that message, that gospel is of first importance. In, in, in encouragement, we are speaking the gospel to one another. Not positive vibes. Not clever hashtags. Not just you need to do, you need to do, you need to do, but look at what God has done. That is how we speak encouragement to one another. doesn't mean that we don't address the other things that are going on. That's very real, and I don't want to dismiss that. But primarily, biblical encouragement, it requires action, and part of that is speaking the gospel into one another. And so are you encouraging one another? 
Are you encouraging one another? It's kind of hard to do that if you're not in community, just saying. So the first question was, what does it mean? The second one is, how do we do it? It was encouragement. And so what are the results? What are the results? As we begin to encourage one another, what happens? The writer gives us three things. All right, he says, let us think carefully about how to provoke one another to love and good works. There are two of them. Those are two results. Love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. That's what we have to do in order to produce love and good works. But then he says, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. He's referring to the coming of Christ. And so the third thing is urgency. It produces three things. Encouraging one another or stirring up one another produces love, good works, and urgency. Those are the three things. And when it comes to love, it is a love for God, it is a love for one another, and it is a love for others. Again, it is being reminded of what God has done and what God is doing. And the beauty is that it doesn't just stay there. That love pours out. He goes on to say that love and good works. Good works are a demonstration of what God has done. Good works are a demonstration of our faith. There are plenty of scriptures that say do good. That's a good thing. But us doing good is a result of what God has done for us in Christ first. That's why he begins with love. That's why he begins with love. And then he goes into good works. And then number three, urgency. And what's the urgency? That man, we are so thrilled and excited about what God has done for us in Christ that it is pouring out into the things that we are doing, but it also pours out into us spreading the gospel message. The word gospel, yeah, it means good news, but it was given to a runner who would go and share that good news. There's urgency that comes with knowing who God is and what he has done for you, not just in your home. That the gospel is now shared with those who don't know Jesus. That wherever it is you are is where you have been sent whether you're a teacher, a parent, a student, a business owner, stay-at-home parent, whatever. Where you are is where you have been sent. And you are to herald the good news. You are to preach the good news to those who are around you who don't know Jesus. And we can work backwards. Why should we do that? Because of what God has done first for us in Christ. We now understand what love is because God first loved us and as a result it transforms us so that we would do things, so that we would do good godly things, so that we would grow in godliness because of the work of Christ. Well then how do I do that? By encouraging one another. By encouraging one another. What does that do? It stirs us up. It does something. It doesn't just make us one. It makes us godly. It makes us reflect the person and work of Jesus as the church. Encouraging one another to love and good works leads us from conviction 
to transformation, from apathy to action, and how you can participate in that is through the means of grace. It's through the means of grace. We talked about them a couple weeks ago. It is the ministry of the Word of God. It is the sacraments. For example, we're going to respond in a minute with, with the Lord's Supper. So it's the sacraments. Right? It is with prayer. Those are amazing, ordinary means of grace that we can participate in so that our hearts would be convicted, so that we would experience the work of the Spirit and respond to the work of the Spirit. I pray that the Holy Spirit not only is prompting you, but is convicting you. Convicting you to encourage a brother or a sister today. Not tomorrow, not after lunch, not via text, not as you write that note in your journal, but that you speak to that brother or to that sister today for their good and your humility, for the glory of God and your good. Speaking words of encouragement with the gospel of the center at the center is life-giving. And if you're having a hard time with that, if you're like, man, I just can't, it's really hard. Then I would ask you to examine the condition of your heart with questions. Is there bitterness that, that is consuming you? Is your heart hardened? Then my encouragement to you is to repent. To repent of your sin and to first be encouraged by the gospel of Jesus for you and then move to action. And don't sit in it too long, Right? Because I think when we sit in stuff like that too long, we start making more excuses. My encouragement to you is to repent of your sin, place your trust in Jesus, worship him for what he has done for you, what he's doing in you, what he has done through you, and move into action. And if you don't know Jesus, here's my encouragement to you. Biblical encouragement comes from a heart renewed by God. And his encouraging words to you are to come to him. To come to him. In faith and repentance, come to him so that you may receive grace and an abundant supply of encouragement. Personal revival cannot be sustained in isolation. It is best sustained in community. Let's pray. God, as we close our time, um, man, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in the hearts of my uh, brothers and sisters, those who are new and maybe are visiting, that you would be at work in their hearts. That you would not just be convicting them, but challenging them. And not just challenging them, but compelling them to respond. And that they would be comforted knowing that you reside in them, that you dwell in them. God, encouragement is, sounds really good when we're receiving it. But it is really humbling when you tell us to go encourage others.
yet that is, that is part of the goal of the church. God, that if we desire to be a church that grows in godliness and in humility, stirring up one another is simply a reality. But that reality comes with godly motivation. It comes with biblical encouragement. It comes knowing that you are at the center of all of it. It comes knowing that we will be transformed by it because your word says that you are faithful to your promises. And so God, may we embrace the truth and promises of your word. May we respond with courage to the conviction that you are um, placing on us. And may we encourage one another today for the glory of your name for the sake of your gospel, and for our good. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.